Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the opportunity that you have given us. We come before you. We're about to open your words. May you bless us and help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our title for today is uh, the word desperate. I think it was being flighted a couple of uh, minutes ago. Desperate. And our verse of concern is 2 Kings chapter 7. Let's all open our Bibles to the book of 2 Kings chapter 7. We'll deal with verse 3 up to verse 8, if not 9. Right, uh, my elder here gave me the go-ahead to say, don't worry about time. But uh, I'm not really much of a preacher that goes on forever. I feel that sermons about eternity should not be eternal. They must come to an end. I need to be alone. Now, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse, uh, from verse 3 up to verse uh, 8. But before that, let's just start off with a bit of some English, the word desperate. So I went to the dictionary to find out what the word desperate means. Or what are the characteristics of someone who is desperate? What do they show? What do they go through? What emotions do they have? I found out that a desperate person is someone who is in such a bad situation that they are willing to take any risk to change the situation. So the first thing about being desperate is that you are in a very bad situation. Not only that, but you are willing in the badness of your situation to take any risk in order to change it. Desperation. It says when someone is desperate, they feel a great need. And when they act, they act irrationally. In other words, a desperate mind does not have normal solutions to the situation. Whereby in situations where you would do normally approved conduct, ways of behavior, in a desperate situation, that doesn't happen. Desperate people, they are irrational, unreasonable. The decisions that they make in their desperation, you cannot understand. It defies logic. You understand that from the concept of being desperate, it means that you are willing, irrationally, to take any risk in order to change your situation. So it is not a normal situation. Therefore, it does not need normal solutions. If you are driving and you are desperate, you can't drive at 120 kilometers per hour. That's normal driving. You can't drive at 80 kilometers per hour. That's a learner's way of driving. When you are desperate, you drive above 120, 160, 180, 200, because that's a desperate situation. If you are desperate and you are asked to pray, you don't pray for two minutes. You don't pray for three minutes. The prayer life is serious. And it goes on forever. You pray with tears in your eyes because you understand that the situation that you're in is so bad that you're willing to take any, anything, any risk to sort it out. In fact, your behavior is irrational. It's illogical. It is not cognitive. It is not understandable. Desperate. So when you're desperate here, if there was a burning house and I speak to mothers and fathers and your child was in the house, 
There's no time to think about the science of entering into the house. There's no time to think about the best way of entering into that particular place. You go in and it's not because you are brave, but it's because you're desperate. So if you are desperate, the tone of your voice also changes. If you are running, I don't know if you've run and you are desperate, just like me. In Joburg here, desperation is very close to all of us. We will run sometime or later in this life. When people are running for us or towards us, wanting to take things from us, you know how Joburg works. The way you run, you can't describe it yourself. You fly through as you are running because you are desperate. So your running is not the normal running, running. You run like a desperate person because you are in a position where you understand that your situation is so bad that there is nothing you cannot do to solve that situation. You are irrational. Desperate people are dangerous people. Desperate people are dangerous people. Some of our worst and some of our best decisions have been made in times when we are desperate. Some of the best decisions that we've ever made in this life have come through because we understood that we are desperate. And unfortunately, some of the worst decisions have also come through from the point that we are desperate. Desperate people are dangerous people. There is nothing that they cannot do. So here we find in the Bible, 2 Kings chapter 7, there's a storyline. The children of Israel, the monarchy has been divided into two. Now there's Israel by the north, and then there is Judah by the south. Now continually, Israel by the north was always at war with the Syrians. Now the Syrians had a king called Ben-Hadad. And this Ben-Hadad made war with the children of Israel in the city, the capital city of Israel by the time Samaria. So what happened is that they would employ a military strategy whereby the attacking army would besiege that particular city, making sure that no one goes out or anyone comes in. The idea behind this ancient military strategy was that these people that are in will soon run out of food. And they can't go out anymore. Neither anything comes in. They'll soon run out of food. When they soon run out of food, it's either they will have to surrender to the Syrian army or because they run out of food, now they are very vulnerable. You can attack them. You cannot attack them when they are full. But when they run out of food, it's easier to attack them. So the situation that we find ourselves in, in the book of 2 Kings chapter 7, we find Ben-Hadad attacking the Israelites, and besieging them and saying to them, listen, I am outside the city. No one can go in. No one can go out. You are stuck in the city. The food supplies that you have will be used up and eventually you will either succumb to my power and, and surrender or I will attack you at your weakest point. So the nation of Israel was desperate. Yeah, let me just show you how desperate the situation was. If you go to 2 Kings chapter 6, we're on 2 Kings chapter 7. 2 Kings chapter 6, it tells you of a story whereby there was a, two women. Two women, they say to themselves, no, listen, let's eat our children. Let's eat our children. I don't know what, what kind of situation do you need to be in for you to look at your child as your next meal. Cannibalism by that time. Second Kings chapter twenty-two, Second uh, Kings chapter six, verse twenty-eight. It says they decided amongst themselves, women, and I'm talking about men, because men sometimes can be detached from children. 
But women who carry these children right on their bosom, they say to themselves, let's eat our children. Game plan. We'll eat yours today and tomorrow we'll eat mine. The Bible says they boiled one of the kids. And they ate one of the kids. Tomorrow comes, because tomorrow will come. That's the problem with hunger. Hunger has a time stamp onto it. It gets to a point where you eat, but it will come back again. Tomorrow comes. And the king had to preside over the situation because now one of the women says, listen, it's our turn to eat your child. And one of the women says, no, you're not going to eat my child. The woman goes to the king and says to the king, this woman yesterday, we ate my child. Today is our turn to eat this one, but she does not want. And the king presided over that. It was bad. It was a desperate situation. Now, let me go further. They sold the head of a donkey for 80 shekels of silver. Today's rate will be about 500 US dollars. They sold a head of a donkey. No, I did not say of a cow. I did not say of a chicken. No, they sold the head of a donkey for 80 shekels of silver. It was the meat of that time. It was a delicacy. By the time they were desperate, they would have done anything to get out of that situation. And so we find in verse 3 of 2 Kings chapter 7, four men. I'm reading. And there were four leprous men at the entering of the gate. And they said one to another, why sit here until we die? Four men are outside the gate. The situation inside is serious. You can imagine it outside. Now, lepers were outcasts in the Israelite society. In fact, the word lepers, and I want to sound like those boys from Helderbeck. The word lepers in the Yidi, language, right? which is a, a Hebrew language of sort. It, it, it means trouble. So lepers were troublesome people. They were outcasts of the society. They would not mix with normal people. Hence the Bible is clear that outside the gate, not inside, not on the other side, but outside the gate there were four men, lepers. Now what was about them was that they had the same condition. It did not matter whether there was one who was married or unmarried. It did not matter whether there was one who was educated or uneducated. Neither did it matter that there was a businessman in that particular case or there was one with children overseas. It did not matter at that particular moment. What mattered, the Bible does not tell us the name of these four men, but it says that there were four men and there were lepers outside the gate. And they came to their senses and said, why sit here until we die? You see, the, the end of it is inevitable. Death was going to come upon them, but they were going to choose how they were going to go. They said to themselves, listen, we understand that the current situation that we're at means that because there's no food inside, there's no food outside. So because of that, if we sit here, we will die. I love how the prayer calls to say, why sit here? Let's talk about sitting. The sitting is a position of inactivity. Right now you are seated. You are inactive per se. Sitting is a position where you are immobilized. Sitting is a position where you are unchanged. When you are sitting, you are saying that I am in a position of relaxation. I am in control. But listen to what they say. Why sit here until we die? So inevitable, they understood the science of life. That the most, the, the thing that was going to happen, that if you 
keep sitting at the same position, you will die. That the process of sitting is a guarantee of your death. So they understood that, listen, there's no food inside, there's no food outside. But if we continue sitting here without making a plan about our lives, without changing anything, without making a decision, we will die. And I want to attest to the church that sometimes if we sit in the same situation, we are waiting for the inevitable, which is death. If we sit in our sins, we will die. If we sit on gossiping, if we are inactive, if we are unchanging, if we are relaxed, if we are in the same position on lying, on cheating, on unfaithfulness to God, if we sit on the same position of hatred, of jealousy, of the spirit of unforgiveness, the Bible records just like this man that, listen, you keep sitting where you are, you will die. So they ask themselves the question, gentlemen, all four of us of different dispositions and characters, of different marital status and financial prowess, we ask ourselves the question, why sit here until we die? Maybe there's a member here who's sitting on unforgiveness and they're justifying it. I will sit here. I will not move. I will not forgive. Why sit here until we die? Some people are sitting on the same relationship. And you're sitting and there's no change. There's no movement. It's immobile. It's a relaxed relationship. The question now is why sit here until we die? We're sitting on the errors of church members. And we're sitting on them and saying, we're going to sit on this error. But the Bible says now, why sit here until we die? So the first point with these four men is that they acknowledge their situation. If they keep sitting here, they will die. Desperate people. Point number one, acknowledge the situation. You're desperate. You need help. You keep sitting there, you will die. So they acknowledge the situation now. Second Kings chapter 7 verse 4. Listen to the options. If we say will enter into the city. Weighing options. If we say we'll enter into the city, then the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit still here, we'll die also. Now therefore, and let us fall, now, now therefore come, and let us fall unto the host of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live, and if they kill us, we shall die. Now, uh, I don't know how you understand the situation. These are the Israelites. Lepers outside. Option, none. And I want to clarify why. Because they have a point where they say to themselves, the logic of getting into the city doesn't work. Even if they allow us to get into the city, so what? They are already selling a goat's head for 80 shekels of silver. They are already killing each other and cannibalism is rife in the city. So it does not, make, does not work for us to get into that particular city. Now, outside where we are, still, there's nothing. Desperate people find out that sooner or later they only have one option. Now, if you still have options, you're not desperate. If you can still come to options and say, I, I can, I will, I shall, maybe that, maybe this, you are not 
desperate. Now these men say, we are being attacked by that army. The reason why we're in this situation is because of that army. Now that army, the enemy, the Syrians, becomes a plausible option. They say, if we go inside, we die, we're outside, we die. They say, let us then go. I want to read this verse again. Now therefore, come and let us fall onto the host of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall die. You see, the only option amongst the three of them that had a guarantee of maybe not dying was the one for the Syrians. Understand that the option was the enemy. The option of salvation for these four men and eventually for the nation of Israel lay with the enemy. Their desperate situation was bent on the mercy of the enemy. They said to themselves, we are going to die anyway. So if we get there and they kill us, that's it. They will kill us. But if we get there and they are nice to us, at least they have food. At least they have food. So the Bible says, they say to themselves, we shall go. Verse 5 says, and they rose up in the twilight. So point number two, you acknowledge your situation, number one. Number two, you weigh your options. Your only option in all of this is one. And that's going to the Syrian army. He that has many options is not desperate at all. Verse 5 says, And they rose up in the twilight to go unto the camp of the Syrians. And when they were come to the uttermost part of the camp of Syria, behold, there was no man there. Now, yesterday, they decided, gentlemen, we sit here, we die. Option one. Which one? Syria. Bible says, and then they executed the option. They rose up in the morning. And when they rose up in the morning, in the twilight of the day, they rose up in the morning and went into the Syrian camp. Now, I want you to understand what's really going on here. These men have the audacity to get to a point where they will go to the Syrian army. They are not carrying any weapons. They are lepers and outcasts of that particular city. They have no representation whatsoever. No letter from the king to say, listen, accept these ones in good faith. No letter from their local church. Neither does the conference know them. They don't have a record for tithe and offering. These men by faith say we will go into the Syrian army. Our hope and our salvation lies with the enemy. And they go. The Bible says they go in the twilight and they came to the camp of the Syrians. And when they come to the uttermost part of the camp of Syria, behold, there was no man. Now, verse 6 gives the reason why there was no man. Understand that when you besiege, you don't move. You always keep your ranks to make sure that if they decide to come out, you're ready to attack. Now, these men go to the Syrian camp and find no man. Verse 6 explains why there was no man. For the Lord. That's verse 6. For the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. And they said, of a great um, host, and they said one to another, Lo, the king of Israel hath hired against us the king of the Hittites and the king of the Egyptians to come upon us. Uh, look at the beauty and the power of Jesus Christ. And I want to acknowledge to the church that unless we get to points of desperation, our miracles will never come. Miracles only come to the desperate. 
They are only, God will not make a decision for you. You yourself, in your situation, must make the decision to take the road that leads to the Syrian camp. And when you get there, when you've decided in your mind, intellectually and emotionally, and have come to a point where you understand your situation, when you get to the Syrian camp, your miracle lies right there with the enemy. For the Lord, that's verse 6, for the Lord, what did the Lord do? The Bible says, the Lord made the sound of the feet of these four men to sound like the sound of horses and chariots. And the Syrians on the other side of the camp heard the movement on the ground, and they they thought that the Israelites had put alliance with the Egyptians and the Hittites to come upon them and they fled. You must imagine what this man felt. You get to a camp and you are going to beg for your life and you find there is no one and you find there is food. God will make a miracle to only those that acknowledge their desperation. And you've got not only to acknowledge your desperation, you've got to get to a point where you weigh your options and your only option is one option. Either you go to Syria or you go to Syria. And God will make a miracle when you've decided to go to Syria. When you wake up in the morning and take and execute the plan, God will make a miracle in Syria for you. Now, this, this, verse 7 says, when they rose, Wherefore they rose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their asses even the camp as it was and fled for their life. Verse 8, it's a party. It says, and when the lepers came to the uttermost part of the camp, they went into one tent and did eat and drink, and carried therefore silver and gold and raiment, and went and hid it, and came again, and entered into another tent, and carried there also, and went in and hid it. God has made a miracle for these four men. But understand that the miracle is extended in verse 9. Then they said one to another, We do not do well. This day is a day of good tidings, and we hold our peace. If we tarry, or if we tarry till the morning light, some mischief will come upon us. Now, therefore, come that we may go and tell the king's household. Uh, look at the irony of this situation. The outcasts become the saviors of Israel. The ones that were outside the gate, the ones that were the lepers that nobody looked at, they become the savior of Israel. They go to the camp by faith, get their fine food. And says the Bible, they went into one tent, they ate, they found gold, they found silver, they found raiment, they took it out, they went to hide it. They went into another camp. Then in the midst of a full stomach, they said to them, we do not do good things. Today is the day of good tidings. Let us go and tell those that are killing each other for food, those that are buying a donkey's head, that listen, the Syrians have left their salvation right in the enemy's camp. And I want to suggest that sometimes God makes a way in front of our enemies. Now read the, the book of Psalms chapter 28. It says, He prepared a table before my enemies. Not outside. Not when they're watching from the windows. No, God lays a table. Put me right there on the table. Then put my enemies hated, hunger. Put my enemies doubt, self-doubt, this and that. And says, He will prepare a table in front of my enemies. These four men lived that life. The book of Psalms chapter 28. Desperate men made a desperate decision. And I want to tell the church that miracles will only come for the desperate, but we must move. Look at Moses. Moses, encompassed by the mountain on the right with the children of Israel, the mountain on the left, the charging armies of Pharaoh behind, had only one option, the sea. 
It's either the sea or the sea. And if he had not taken the first step to put his foot onto the water, maybe the Red Sea would not have opened. But it only opened in relation to his faith. He had to intellectually and by faith make a decision and put his feet right there. Look at the man, blind but timorous. The Bible says Jesus was passing by Jericho for the last time. This was his last journey. From there on, he was going to his crucifixion. Now, Jesus was passing by for the last time. The Bible says, Bartimaeus was by the corner right there, strategically seated at the exit or entrance of the gate. Now, he knew that visitors would either come in that gate or go out that gate. So, strategy, number one, sit by the gate. Now, he heard. The Bible says he heard. Because he was a blind man, he did not see. The Bible says he heard that Jesus was passing by. And when Jesus was passing by, Jesus, blind Bartimaeus shouted the Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now, those that could see. One to silence one who cannot see in front of Jesus who can make the blind see. And this man said to himself, when the Bible says, when they say to him, no, become observe policy. Follow order. He will come to you when he comes to you. Your turn is coming. The Bible says when those that did not understand what it means to be blind came to him to say to him, shut up. Keep quiet. Don't do this. You're making noise. He shouted the more. Because they did not understand that his situation was desperate. And Jesus was passing by just for the last time. If he had not shouted the more, maybe he would have died blind. The Bible says, Jesus said to him, what would you like me to do? And it was clear. Because when you're desperate, you don't dilly-dally around. You don't go about talking about, ah, I would like to um, see sometimes. I would like to see. He said, I would like to see. It reminds me of the man who, who was by the pool of Bethsaida. That man was not desperate. That man for 38 years, I'm not even 38, but that man was, told, was not desperate at all. Jesus comes to him and says, listen, what, what do you want me to do to you? He starts off with a story. He says, listen, Jesus, when they come, when the angels, when they come, but sometimes opportunity are equal. So, the situation I'm in. He explains the situation when the question is simple. What do you want me to do to you? What did you want? This blind Bartimaeus simple says, I want to see. The woman had an issue of blood for 12 years. Now, the Bible says she had gone to many physicians to look for help. But instead, it made her worse. Then one day, the man Jesus is coming He's passing by. This woman looks at a chance and says, listen, I will take this chance or I will take this chance. He says, I might not touch him. Maybe there are too many people. I might not get to have an audience with him like Nicodemus who, said to, who spoke to him one-on-one. -on -one. I might not be able to be part of those people that actually sit with him on the table of food to eat. But this is one thing that I can do. Amongst these people, when he passes by, maybe, maybe, allow me to be imaginative, maybe she was trying to just touch him and she couldn't. And then the hem of his garment was passing by. Maybe it was towards the last part of the hem of the garment, but by faith that woman says, if I cannot touch him physically, the man, but at least let me touch his clothes. And the Bible records that she at that moment was healed. And Jesus stopped and says, I perceive that virtue has gone out of me. I perceive that power has gone out of me. But the woman was desperate. Question now is, uh, when I gave him the 
Are you desperate? Look at, look at the things that you like doing. Are you desperate that sin dies in you? Or you have options. You're going to say to yourself, ah, I'm not going to do it as much as I'm doing it. I'm not going to gossip that much. I'll choose a group to gossip. I'm not going to gossip with everyone. I'm not going to gossip about everyone. There are select, select individuals that I'll deal with. I'm not going to stop this whole unfaithfulness to God through tithes and offerings. Some months I will give. But God has to understand. Some months I don't have. I'm not going to get to a point where I leave my unfaithfulness, even in relationships. I'll just reduce the number of women or men in my life. Maybe one or two. That's a safe number. Now, at that point, you're not desperate. And I want to tell the church as we go through the end of our sermon that God can only save those that are desperate in sin. Peter was drowning. Shortest prayer I've ever heard. Lord, save me. There's no Lord, God of Shalom. Lord, Jehovah Jireh. There's no praises whatsoever. Jehovah Nisi, the one who speaks to rocks and rocks come out with water. There is no relating whatsoever, but he says what he needs. Lord, save me. Because at this moment, I am dying. If you do not save me now, I will die. So he says to, 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 to God, Lord, I know I am an experienced sailor. I've gone through many storms before, but this is no ordinary storm. I'm at a point of desperation. It's either you save me now or I die. And so therefore, he was desperate. I know another man in the Bible who's desperate. The Bible records the situation about the man. He was in a garden in Gethsemane. The fate of the world lay upon the decision in Gethsemane. This was no ordinary man. This was God incarnate. The act of condescending to become man when you're God, you cannot understand it. How does the creator of the universe become like us? At what point of desperation was he at? to decide to come from heaven. I know a man desperate. What decision did he have to take? What kind of love is that that forces a man, God himself, from heaven to come down upon earth? I mean, look at this. He could have obliterated us out of existence and created something completely new and that was when it but his love was constraining him to a point where he comes down not as the richest man that ever lived on earth but as a lowly servant walking the streets of Israel and he comes down in the garden of Gethsemane he has the weight of the world on his soldiers and his soldiers and he's thinking about the end result you the Bible says it got to a point where he needed to weigh his options and it says if it is possible let this cup pass from me. But nonetheless, not my will, but yours. He had an option to leave us. This world can always be started over again. Whoever would not miss us 
But God, constrained by his love, a determined, decides upon that point of being desperate and says, I have only one option for these dying ones. I will either die for them or I will die for them. And the Bible records that they took him, creatures. One of them or some of them, they clapped him. How do you clap Jesus? They spit on him. How do you spit on God? Who by looking at you, you can banish you out of this earth? What kind of constraint does a man have to have in order to allow mortals to clap the immortal? What kind of love is this that God allows creatures like us to actually nail him on the cross? The Bible records that it was the Roman soldiers who nailed him. And Jesus, during his death, says to them, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. It bothers my mind. How are you desperate enough to say that they don't know what they're doing when these were trained soldiers? They went to school for this. They know the right tendon to hit. They know the type of, of, of nails to use at that particular moment. This man was desperate. Hanging on the cross, he did not die the death of a, of, 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 of a strong person, of an amazing person. He died the death amongst thieves. His entourage on the left and right were not district men. They were not MPs. They were not presidents. These were the common thieves despised of the society next to him. How desperate have you got to be for you to do that? And the Bible records that he stretched out his arms. And then he says, it is finished. And at that moment, heaven could now accept him as the lamb without blemish. At that moment, men and women on earth had a chance to live forever. At that moment, the devil was defeated eternally so. The plan of salvation had come to fruition, but the plan of salvation was based on a desperate God. And I want to acknowledge to the church that loving human beings, God loving us is a desperate act. Love is a desperate emotion. If you still have options when you're in love, you're not desperate. Love in its nature and at its highest and at its pinnacle and at its most efficient, love is a desperate emotion. It loves the unlovable. It does good to those that do bad to it. It loves those that don't care about it. It seeks to look for those that don't even look for it itself. Love is a desperate emotion and there is no greater desperation like the desperation of Jesus. Even up to now in heaven, he is desperately begging you, begging me, that you may come unto salvation. And it says in John chapter 10, verse 10, The thief cometh to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I have come that you may have life and life in abundance. It says in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse, uh, verse 3, it says, The Lord of all just said unto me, I have drawn you with my loving kindness. It says in, 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 in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says, I beseech you, brethren, Beseeching is an act of begging. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. God appeals to us. It is the, the, the law and the rulership of heaven to appeal to human beings and to beg them. I want to use that word, love begs those that don't love it. And the greatest begging act is the act of the cross. And I want to acknowledge to the church 
John chapter 3, verse 16. No man is as desperate as Jesus. I wonder, I, I, I wouldn't want to be in the mind of Jesus. To be in a world where no one cares about you. Maybe you walk and live like you don't exist. Where you are always the last one to be thought of. Always the last thought. In every situation, like, ah, Konja, there's Jesus. When no one really cares about how you feel, where they despise your love. And Isaiah chapter 5 talks about a vineyard and says, the question that, that Isaiah asks says, what more could I have done to this vineyard? And I want to attest to the church that there is nothing that Jesus Christ has not desperately done for us in order for us to be saved. It is your choice to decide for him or against him. To look at your situation and acknowledge, is it a bad situation or not a bad situation? Therefore, in John chapter 3, verse 16, it says, For God, for God, and God being the greatest giver, so loved the world, which is the greatest emotion or greatest principle, that he gave the greatest expression his only begotten son, the greatest gift, that whosoever, the greatest invitation the world has ever seen, that whosoever, regardless of your color, your creed, your culture, your nationality, that whosoever, that whosoever, the greatest invitation, shall accept that particular invitation, shall get to a point where he will not perish, which is man's greatest fear, but have everlasting life, which is man's greatest desire. And I want to acknowledge to the church and present Jesus to you and to me. To say we have a God in heaven that loves us, but he can only save you if you are desperate. There's a song that I love. I love this song so much. Been thinking about it for a couple of months now. The words of the song say, "The love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong." It says it shall forever, forever more endure. But I love the third stanza because the analogy can be understood from the perception of Earth. It says the writer of the song. It was written in 1917, over 100 years ago. It says, "Could we?" With ink, the ocean fill. So if we could take the Indian Ocean and the Atlantic and all other oceans in this world and make sure that the water there is ink, could we with ink the ocean fill? And says, and every stock on earth is made to be like a pen where you could dip a stock there and write. And it says, we'll give you a book as big as the sky, stretched from one end to the other, and will give each individual person ink as much as the ocean, a stock where you can write, and the book is your sky, each one of us, and you're asked to start writing about the love of God. The writer of that song says that we will drain the oceans dry without finishing about this love of God. Ellen White puts it even more beautiful. In the book Heavenly Places, she says that Language is too feeble to portray 
the love of God. She says, we rejoice in it. We accept it. But we can never comprehend it. Language is too feeble to portray the love of God for the sinner. We will rejoice in it. We will accept that love. But ask us to make logic about it. We can't. We cannot comprehend it. And here we have a Savior who loves us and loves you and me beyond comprehension. But the point of the matter is, are you desperate for his love? Much is desperate for you. As I end, the writer, I think in the book of Luke, says, for hell was created for the angels, for the devil and his angels. Nothing to do with us human beings. In other words, Jesus is so optimistic about our salvation that he finds no reason why we cannot be saved. In fact, it's harder not to be saved than to be saved. This is why it says, for the wages of sin. Because for you to have a wage, you must work. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Savior. Like me, I'm standing to say, maybe I'm not desperate. And I'm praying that God make me desperate. Give me only one option and I'll take it. It's you or it's you. I think number 54 says into any fisai. Then it says, listen, Noma Momlilo Then it says, Noma Kunjan. Noma Kunjan. Isono Masife Impel. And I want to stand up and I'm giving a call to say, maybe there's someone like me and I want, I want us to pray. And I want you to stand up if you feel that you're in the position of desperation. If you know that I will do anything to save this soul. That the life that I'm living is not right. That Jesus Christ comes now. I am not making it to heaven. I know it. I don't need to be told by a preacher. I don't need to read it anyway. I will tell myself from the position of being seated there that there is no way I am making it to heaven with my current lifestyle. So, for that reason, into any beside So, the song says, as I sing the song, stand up and we have a prayer.